So today we have our first um, guest medical minute. Uh, so I'm very excited to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Phil Fiddler, one of our uh, extraordinary burn surgeons. And he's gonna talk about a couple uh, pearls or interesting things about uh, burns. Um, I was gonna bring up one topic about uh, burn size estimation and whether most like outlying ERs or urgent cares overestimate or underestimate the size of a burn. And I don't know what you've what you've seen or do you have any, any sure. comments? So um, good morning everyone. The estimation of burn size is done usually between two diagrammatic entities. One is the Lund-Browder diagram which is very granular and the more commonly used one is the rule of nines which we still continue to teach because it's hard to forget something as simple as that. I'll warn you that toddlers in particular have a head size that's twice the size of, of an adult in terms of percent body surface area, meaning it's about 20 percent. I think it's actually 19 percent, but just let's use round numbers. So about 20 percent in an infant where it's 10 percent in an adult. So burn size is underestimated in children because if you, if you burn half your face as a child, that's, you're already up to 10%, whereas in an adult, that would only be about 5%. So watch out for underestimation in the toddler with the scald, who's not generally critically ill, versus overestimation in the adult, where I think, especially in the face of a house fire, when there's a bunch of soot. And I, I have familiarity with a patient that was a 99% burn, but actually was just soot. It wasn't burned at all. We washed them off and it was fine. So, so beware, usually overestimation of the burn size is what we'll receive. A um, couple notes on inhalational injury. As you know, the, the most lethal thing about a house fire is breathing in toxic fumes. And carbon monoxide poisoning is a common thing that we need to address. And I would tell you that carbon monoxide poisoning and hyperbaric oxygen is a question that you're gonna get asked about. We have the capability to provide that care. Just Saturday night, we did a baby and mom together. Um, in the chamber upstairs. So the thing about carbon monoxide poisoning is you'll be able to normalize it with 100% oxygen on your face. The reason that we give the hyperbaric oxygen later is, is it's been shown to have better long-term outcomes for patients neurocognitively. So while it's not life-saving, because you all know, hey, the carboxyhemoglobin is pretty normal now, do we need it? The thought is that it helps people down the road. And I've actually been impressed to see a neuropsych evaluation show me that some of these patients are uh, doing worse than, than meets the eye, and it, and it may be helpful in that regard. For those that are involved in intubation, if you can, and it's a judgment call, but if, you, if you're stuck between tube sizes, please try to get a size 8 ET tube in. We do a lot of bronchoscopy. See Desiree winking at the back. Uh, and it's very helpful to have a tube at least 8 so that we don't obstruct their airway when we're cleaning out their lungs down the road. If you can't get it in, of course, you know, put the size tube uh, that you can, but sometimes the intuition is, oh, the airway's swollen, let me put in a smaller tube. Please put in an eight. And the last thing I'll speak about is flash burns on home oxygen. You know, these folks, a uh, very common player, they come in with the melted nasal cannula, they look like they're in respiratory distress because, you know, that's how they are all the time. You know, they're on home oxygen. So while I'll never tell somebody not to in intubate if they think they need it, don't, don't get fooled necessarily by these other signs that we talk about, like um, burns singe nasal hairs or eyebrows, that's, a, that's, a, that's one of those triggers for inhalation injury, probably should intubate. In this unique population where it's home oxygen and it's just a flash, if the patient's telling you that they're breathing as well as they usually do, but they're just having a bit of burn on the face, you might hold off on intubation and we can discuss it. Those are the couple of topics I just wanted to bring up. I hope I'm under the time limit.
Thanks, Dr. Fiddler, for, for coming today, and appreciate everybody uh, coming to our Medical Minute. You want me to hold the phone so you can talk? Since you've got the mic. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is really awkward. <laughs> At any rate, um, so I had to tell this Medical Minute, even though it has very little relevance to anything we really do, but um, it brought me back 20 years to medical school when, um, more than 20 years, sorry. Never mind. At any rate. Um, <laughs> yeah, something like that. I've forgotten. It's been so long. At any rate. So there was this doc who like literally looked like Ichabod Crane. He's like seven feet tall. I mean, super skinny, big nose. And he was such an imposing figure. And his big thing was he was very old. And he was like, you know, one of the guys who tasted urine to see if people had diabetes and that sort of thing, I guess. And at any rate, so he was really big on the physical exam. And he thought that, you know, people today don't know how to do physical exams. And I, in general, probably agree with him. And certainly he had some amazing skills. But we would all freak out if we had to do any sort of an exam in front of him because this guy was like known for being able to percuss subdural hematomas. So literally saw the guy do this. It's crazy. So nonetheless, um, this medical minute stems from, from a, a shout out to him. So at any rate, um, there was this just little blurb uh, in Medscape about a study that they just did on uh, concussion and transcranial Dopplers. So basically, transcranial Dopplers to assess brain blood flow have been around since the 80s. Meditech era, you might also note. Um, and at any rate, uh, they, they were great for, you know, kind of following severe brain injuries with significant blood flow abnormalities, but not so great for following concussions with milder blood flow abnormalities. So uh, they did a study funded by the NIH. Uh, they had 66 concussed athletes and 169 age and sex match controls. And basically all of these people had clinical diagnosis of concussion um, by a specific set of criteria. And they used the transcranial Doppler to then assess bilateral uh, middle cerebral artery blood flow to assess whether or not uh, these people had subtle brain blood flow abnormalities that could be followed. So they basically, the difference in this is it's a much more sensitive transcranial drop Doppler. And it's also uh, hooked to a software that basically interprets the data and then sort of spits out a picture that then you can follow over the course of time to to see resolution of the concussion. So the bottom line as far as like the sensitivity was about 83% uh, between the concussed versus non-concussed patients. So pretty decent sensitivity for a non-invasive test. And I think that, you know, it's really an interesting technology. They actually just pre presented this at the American Academy of Neurology. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if this technology sort of takes off because it has many implications for, you know, even a, a field side uh, assessment of concussion. Uh, analysis and more of a physiologic parameter and also, you know, maybe flow into vascular dementias, um, stroke people, uh, any, any kind of vascular issues with the brain. So very interesting, new technology, but just made me think of percussing subdurals, which by the way, I've never been able to do. Thank you. You haven't done that either. <laughs>